Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And uh, joining us today is JP Ballard, who is the CEO of Swissside. Now, I don't know a ton about JP, so I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. But I do, I have been following Swissside for a long time. And in my, you know, perception of the of the world, they're one of the few companies, maybe the only one that I can think of, that has its fingers in about as many of the the aerodynamic <laughs> pies that I can imagine. So, um, folks, if you're not familiar with Suicide or if you're only familiar with a little bit of what they do, um, they're they're a big consultancy where then they'll work with uh, with some very high level athletes on uh, improving their aerodynamic uh, setups on the bike. Uh, they uh, they have a sensor uh, that they've developed in house. Um, they also have a computational fluid dynamics um, model that they have. Uh, and then beyond all that, they also developed actual products that find your find their way onto your bicycle, uh, like their wheels, um, their front ends. So, uh, you know, the, the possibilities for this conversation, folks, are pretty much endless. But before I, I take all the air in the room and, and keep uh, prattling on about this, I'm going to say, JP, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully diving down some, uh, some fun rabbit holes in the cycling aerodynamic side of things. Absolutely. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. Let's, uh, let's deep dive into the world of aerodynamics and cycling engineering. Great. Well, I, I've got to say, I like the idea of those aerodynamic pies that you mentioned earlier. Um, they sound delicious. So. <laughs> we'll have to uh, we'll have to bake one or, or or come up with some kind of you know uh, baked good that is uh, also aerodynamic. But I'm totally getting off topic. Uh, so JP, before we dive anywhere, um, tell us how you got to be the CEO of Suicide. Yeah, um, good question. Uh, so I come from a motorsport background. Um, I, as a kid, I wanted to do racing cars. Um, I would say, as Ayrton Senna said, uh, racing's in your blood. And when that's the case, um, you can't get it out. Um, <laughs> as a young kid, I, I followed Formula One. I saw that there was a guy who was doing all of the design and the, the, the technical director at, at McLaren at the time. And he's a guy called Adrian Newey. So I looked up, what did Adrian Newey do at university? Well, he did uh, aeronautical engineering. And that was like, bang, I want to do aeronautical engineering. <laughs> So that's where it all, all began. Um, I also uh, raced as well. I built my own cars and, and raced in the um, uh, in the GT Touring Car Champion or Sports Car Championships in Australia. Um, so I had a lot of uh, a lot of hands-on experience as well with uh, building cars and, and, and racing cars. Um, uh, but in the end, you know, I wasn't a Michael Schumacher, I wasn't a Lewis Hamilton, and and uh, and it was clear that where I actually got as much interest was in the actual engineering of the cars. Um, so I did aeronautical engineering um, at university, and uh, what was interesting is through the racing, um, especially for the long distance racing I did, you had to be fit, hmm. and I discovered that getting endurance fitness, I mean, would keep my lap times down over longer, you know, one-hour stints, two-hour stints in the car. And cycling was my go-to. And long after my racing career as a driver, just the love of endurance sports and of 
cycling stuck with me and I've done a lot of cycle racing all over the world, triathlons, Ironman, um, love it. You know, endurance sports is amazing. And the combination of endurance sports with engineering is absolutely a massive passion of mine, which I've now turned to my full-time career. Um, but yeah, moving on, just a bit of background. So uh, I absolutely wanted to be involved in motorsport. I wanted to get into Formula One. Um, I was raised uh, between Australia and Switzerland, um, but uh, mostly in Australia, went to university in Australia. And then as soon as I finished my degree, jumped on a plane, got to Europe, um, did everything I needed to do to get into an F1 team, which I did. And I then spent 14 years in, in Formula One, um, primarily in yeah, aerodynamics, but also composite design. Um, and at the end of my career, I was at the Sauber Formula One team, which is now the Alfa Romeo team, um, as the head of the complete F1 car concept design, uh, where we literally created the F1 car. Um, and what was interesting with that is that was very much sort of a, you had to be across all areas. So you had to be expert in aerodynamics because it's the most important performance parameter, but you had to know, you know, we would lay out the suspension of the car, the wheelbase, we'd design the chassis. So you really had to be across mechanical engineering, composites, aerodynamics, uh, and, and everything. And um, after a while, especially, you know, we're living in a world where things are changing. Uh, climate change is a big thing um, that's always been close to me. I love the nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of two things happened. One, Formula One became a little bit pointless for me. I, I loved I loved the sport. I loved the technical challenge. But driving cars around in circles every other Sunday, even though I loved and I still watch <laughs> Formula One, is kind of pointless in today's day and age. And, and I thought, look, you know, I've got some great engineering skills. Uh, how can I apply that somewhere else, which is maybe more relevant? Um, and I was still competing in, in endurance sports and cycling, and I sort of thought, okay, um, can I combine these two things? And um, one of the great things in, in in Switzerland is we have a one and a half hour lunch break. That's kind of typical in the culture. Nice. So all of the engineers. Speaking of North Americans, you're uh, yeah, you're you, you've got my jealousy meter, you know, in the red now. Yeah, and it's about to get worse because what we would do is we'd go out like riding every lunchtime and and you know, there were a lot of really competitive cyclists in the engineering crew and like we would, we would really be like <laughs> racing at lunchtime and there was always this sort of technical aspect as well. So, you know, how can I improve my setup and, and, and so <laughs> on. And so with the head of aerodynamics at the time, uh, we actually did a wind tunnel test in our equipment. We're like, um, you know, we're going to do the because we got a wind tunnel. We can, we can do, we can have some <laughs> some fun and games, you know. Um, and uh, and we literally did that, and um, and we discovered just how underdeveloped the equipment was. Um, hmm. You know, we looked at the equipment. We go, is there something we haven't really understood here? You know, we do you know, medium speed aerodynamics. You know, cars that do you know two hundred miles an hour or whatever. But you know, these are you know, have we missed something at you know twenty thirty mile an hour? You know bikes and stuff um but actually no we hadn't missed anything and and the equipment was crap so um that was sort of like the avenue that opened the door to me to do something and and i sort of said right you know midlife crisis let's create my own business um <laughs> let's call it swiss slide and and let's go crazy and um that's where it all began you know totally and naively you know good engineer no idea about business create my own thing and and uh, sink or swim and um uh, you know it's it's almost 10 years later since that initial thought um and we're very much um, alive and kicking. 
Well, it is interesting that um, that you mentioned the number of high-level cyclists that that existed in in Formula One through the engineers there, because I know even looking at some of the drivers, uh, Fernando Fernando Alonso has a strong cycling background. I think he was looking at one point of starting a cycling team, and then Jensen Button is a very accomplished triathlete himself. So. Um, yeah, it's it is interesting the parallels, despite being in two completely different circles. Um, and as someone who loves Formula One as well, but also is starting to see maybe the relevance decline uh, with the racing in circles and the traveling all over the world every every weekend or every other weekend. And I think this year it's twenty three or twenty four races, which is the most they've ever done. Yeah, going totally back nuts. and forth, like you you might be in Australia and then two weeks later you're in. North America, I think is the way it's happening or Italy. So it's just, it's a lot of expense. So it's, it's good to see, um, I guess the, the reprioritization or the realization of maybe what your own priorities are. And hopefully, you know, I, I would love to see racing continue, but I think the, uh, the endurance sports is the side that, uh, that I'm definitely passionate about seeing grow. What's really great, I was just going to say, is that um, I had a bunch of guys that, that jumped across from Sauber with me over the last few years as well. So, you know, everyone's – I've got so many, you know, great fans who are now involved in the business. So my former boss, the, who was 19 years head of aerodynamics at Sauber, built it up from a, uh, an aerodynamics department of two people up to a department of 120 people. Hmm. Um, you know, he's now chief uh, research officer here at Swissside. So, um, you know, a lot of people with that same mindset. Oh, that's awesome. And also, given that today's uh, Earth Day that we're recording on, I think this is absolutely uh, very, very on the nose conversation from going from, uh, you know, from a, a motorsport to a, a human powered one. And, and at, at that note, I'd just like to drop in something I say quite often in interviews and so on. Um, the future of, of transport in urban environments um, are going to be lightweight mobility vehicles. Hmm. Um, and they are as from an engineering and a physics perspective, far, far, far more closely related to a bicycle than they are to a, a motor vehicle, to a normal car or an SUV or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the research, and this was really honestly one of the key things from day one at Swissside. Yes, we're passionate about cycling. Yes, it's a, an area where we're heavily involved with. But where we want to be going is to make a difference in transport and mobility for you know the solutions we need for our future and um and that's aerodynamic efficiency in yeah that is the priority and so we're developing this know-how um and that is our goal to apply it to um yeah to to transport as well as to sports that's fascinating because I, I was just uh, <clears throat> listening to another podcast that I really like, and uh, I wish I remembered the, the gentleman's name, but there was a uh, uh, a British entrepreneur who in the, I believe in the 80s, um, revealed this, you know, he, he made his money in computers, but then he revealed this, um, the, one of the first electric cars that was slated for mass production. And it basically looked like a bathtub with the sides cut out and it ran on like a golf cart battery and it was terrible. And nobody, you know, he revealed in the middle of when he, he also dropped it in the middle of winter in, in the UK um, and it had no roof and it was tiny and the battery would, would, you know, run for 12 minutes as opposed to half an hour because it was cold uh, and people just weren't ready for it at all. So it was a complete flop. It, it you know, almost ruined this guy. Uh, but that was a very different environment than, than what we're living in right now, because I think people are much more, much more prepared for it. Even just looking at the proliferation of uh, all of these other mobility devices, like electric scooters and the, you know, the one, the big wheels or one wheels or whatever they're called. Uh, I think, uh, I think you're spot on there, JP. 
Yeah. Um, and like, you know, the number one thing that we, we see is that, um, and I mentioned it before, um, uh, it's funny, we're doing a, a big project at Twisside at the moment involving um, trucks. Hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> the distribution of aerodynamic drag, rolling resistance and weight effects are almost identical than a road rider on on the road. Hmm. Um, so it's you know, the way we approach the, the, the challenge, the way we engineer, the way we approach the physics, same, same. So um, and yeah, we also use the same tools and uh, and everything. So yeah, what we do is 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 you know applicable to cycling. It's applicable to trucks. It's applicable to cars. Um, it's a uh, yeah. So it's very interesting. The comment you made earlier, um, just saying you threw a bike in the well, not threw a bike, but uh, took a bike to the wind tunnel because I know it's very involved to get the balance tuned in and set up. But um, you you had said a lot of the the products were crap. Um, that uh, I think. I think most people are aware that there's a lot more marketing emphasis and faux science as opposed to uh, actual hard data. So what what were your first realizations? Like what, what areas, without throwing specific manufacturers under the bus, but what areas did you see that needed the most improvement? Yeah, look, number one was just the aerodynamic design of the equipment, really in every respect. I mean, you had your your early pioneers, your Graham Rebreeze, you know, whatever down the line doing some fantastic, crazy stuff who got it. Um, the funny thing is, like you say, you mentioned marketing and yeah, look, cycling is driven by marketing, um, but the laws of physics have never changed. <laughs> and um, the difficult thing with aerodynamics is you know, the laws of physics are that aerodynamic drag on a cyclist for when you ride down the road is... 70 odd percent of the energy that you put in your pedals and the faster you go you know a guy on the velodrome charging around at, at top speed in a team pursuit you know we're talking sort of 85 percent aero drag um, hmm. if not higher right so fact is aero drag is king but it's really hard to measure you know where if i give you like um if i give you a, a part and it's 100 grams you know heavy and you say look you know it's I'm going to save you 100 grams. Well, you can feel that. It's tangible, right? So mm-hmm. this whole weight weenieism that we've, we've lived through for the last 20 years in cycling is because weight is easy to understand. If it's lighter, it has to be faster, right? And the answer is it is faster, but it's just a question of how important it is in the, in the grand scheme of things. And aerodynamics, on the other hand, aerodynamic drag in particular, um, you, it's really hard to quantify and therefore people don't understand it. Um, and it's like this invisible enemy that's slowing you down. And I think that was the main thing is that, you know, everyone's been focused on weight. So, you you know, for example, people were designing um, structures, you know, that have, you know, one-to-one profile uh, aspect ratios, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, round tube or hexagonal tubes or whatever, you know, designs that were structurally efficient, that aerodynamically terrible. And the structural efficiency might save you, and, you know, the weight might be saving you 10 seconds per, you know, per 60 miles but it might be costing you five minutes per 60 miles due to its poor shape. So, you know, the one thing that we really did realize is that, you know, really how poor the bikes were. And what we did in those first wind tunnel tests where we had a play is, you know, we also just you know, got some, what we actually do a lot in the wind tunnels. Um, you know, we just get some profiles, you tape them on, you use some plasticine, you blend it in, you just have a play. Um, and, you know, we saw straight away, you know, we're not talking about marginal gains. We were talking about, you know, with cardboard and, and plasticine and we could get 20% reductions or 30% reductions in aerodrag. So it was straight away, right, this is where we need to be at. And then 
you know, all you need to do is like in Formula One, um, in the end, it doesn't matter if you've got the best aerodynamics or the most powerful motor. What, what matters is that you have the, the, the fastest lap time. Mm-hmm. So the way we approach the problem in Formula One is we do simulations. We calculate what is the best setup, the balance between engine power, suspension setup, um, downforce, whatever, to get the lowest, um, the, the fastest lap time. And so we do the same thing in, in, in what we do at Twistside. So what we do is we take a course, you know, it might be a, a road cycling course with hills, without hills, a time trial course, flat, whatever. And we just run simulations and we say, okay, what happens if we change the drag level? What happens if we try, change the weight level? And we see the sensitivity and straight away without making anything, just by doing some simple simulations. Okay, nowadays we've got some pretty cool complex simulation tools, but um, you know, you can in a very easy way with an Excel spreadsheet, even with a calculator, you can calculate what's mo- most important. And straight away what you learn is focusing on reducing aerodynamic drag, um, is is king and you know the rider themselves is obviously you know 70 percent of the aero drag uh, mm-hmm. of the system so you know even as a wheel you know we we make wheels at swiss side i would i'd be lying if i said to you you know first thing you've got to do is buy buy swiss side wheels um that would be a lie you know the first thing you've got to do is look at yourself on the bike how do you get into a better position what equipment are you are you, you know what's your suit what's your helmet um, that's your first point of call. So, yeah, really just basic analysis of the system and, and saying, okay, how can we be faster? So that was sort of to a long answer to a simple question, and what <laughs> did we learn? We learned that the cycling industry had no idea about performance and how to approach the problem uh, of optimising performance, and it needed just a structured approach and based on physics and based on facts. And, and that's what we did at Swissside, and um, not just for our own brand, but for the brands we, we work with and teams and athletes we work with. And that's been really well um, uh, accepted and, and people really want it. So that's really been the backbone of, of what we do is just genuine engineering um, uh, for the cycling industry. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I think I think probably the the greatest confounding factor is that human element in the aerodynamics. If we again draw the comparison between a cyclist on a bike and an F one car, there's uh, oh, and I I'm going to totally expose my complete ignorance of F one you know mechanics and, and physics, uh, but. Uh, the this you know the body of the cyclist is exposed to the wind whereas the the body of the driver is contained in the in the in a car so you know what you do to the what you do to the car affects aer- the aerodynamics of the system much more i would argue well you just said it as well that what you do to the hardware of a bicycle um affects the whole system including the rider right as you said the rider is 70 odd percent of the of the aero drag so that uh, that um c- controlling the position of a human on the bike, a human who is moving as well, you know, at least the legs are spinning, that, that, that makes it an incredibly complicated problem. And uh, you started, JP, talking about the wind tunnel, but um, uh, clearly you have other tools than just the wind tunnel that you've, that you've employed and that I mentioned in our introduction. Do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about those other tools that you have? And then maybe after that, we can talk about how um, all of these tools play together in in creating the optimal solution. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think this is really key to how we develop at Swissside um, because you know, there are lots of people that out there who do wind tunnel testing or that do uh, track testing or do CFD simulation, 
what's key to what we do is we pull them all together. And mm-hmm. um, we call this our forearm um, development process. And uh, so what are the forearms? So I actually already mentioned the simulation um, side of things. So, you know, really simulating various courses with a rider on the course and just seeing what what gives you the far, the most benefit in performance is it weight is it aerodynamic drag is it increasing the powers in the pedal you know so just understanding the system and what is the ranking of uh, of of things you need to tackle to to get the most performance um okay. so that's one arm so we call that performance simulation um once we understand the system uh and we see as we mentioned before that aero drag really is king if you want to be faster uh, or more efficient um so then you have to start developing. And then what we do is CFD is where we do most of our development. So computational fluid dynamics, you know, aerodynamics in the computer, um, it's something that's a core of, of, of what we do. Um, I mean, I've got a huge benefit that um, even though the Sauber Formula One team has been up and down over the years from, you know, a front runner in the BMW days to back of the field and now back in the middle, um, what little people know is uh, Sauber has been one of the biggest pioneers of CFD development in Formula One. Hmm. And their systems have been bought by Ferrari, have been bought by Audi, um, and they to this day have the most powerful CFD system um, and I'd say the most advanced CFD know-how um, uh, in all of the Formula One grid. And, of course, we benefit from uh, a, a lot of that and um, and have brought a lot of that know-how across to, to what we do at Swissside and, and how we develop. So CFD is a big one. Um, you know, when we do a, a, a bike project, um, you know, we'll do, you know, up to 100 different um, configurations at, you know, five, six different your angles. So, you know, you're crunching a lot of numbers. We do bike alone. We do bike with a rider. Sometimes we, you know, simulate just a wheel by itself. Um in triathlon, you know, where you can do weird and wonderful things like remove seat tubes or down tubes or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. The great thing is in CFD, you can have you can play with all of this without having to think about structural things. You can you can have a, a bike that has, you know, we call them Siemens sky hooks that sort of, you know, float in the air without any physical connection, but you can really like understand. The Zwift bike, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we can do all sorts of crazy stuff. So CFD is a big one. Um, once we've got developed designs, wind tunnel is, is the place we go. And um, uh, important is if you want to go into the wind tunnel, you actually need to have physical parts. So it gets pretty mm-hmm. expensive pretty quickly. Um, but, again, drawing on our experience from, from F1, uh, we do a lot with rapid prototyping. Um, and, uh, again, one of my colleagues in, in my group uh, from the time um, left uh, Sauber at a similar time to me and opened a, um, a rapid prototyping company hmm. and um, actually has the leading material, which is a carbon-reinforced um, uh, laser sinter material, which is used by Formula 1 teams, motorsport teams. And so we build all of our bike prototypes out of this stuff and it's made locally and it's brilliant. So we've got good understanding in making stuff that we go to the wind tunnel and then we've got some really cool wind tunnel systems. So, um, you know, video tracking systems for monitoring rider position on the bike. Cause as we said before, mm-hmm. the rider moves, you need to know how much they move. Um, we've got, you know, laser measurement systems, pressure measurement systems, all sorts of stuff. And, um, you know, we've now got a team of guys that are just electronics guys, programming guys, um, that just design and develop, um, wind tunnel and on-road measurement equipment because the type of stuff we want doesn't always exist, so we make it ourselves. Um, 
So that's the third bit. And the final bit, which we'll get to in a second, is the on-road measurement. Um, so, you know, everything we've done till now, CFD, wind tunnel, these are all virtual worlds. Um, mm -hmm. You know, wind tunnels getting closer to reality. We really try and test in a, in a way that's super close to reality, but it's nonetheless still a simulation. So you have to have that final test on the road with the equipment, and then you want to be able to measure aerodynamic drag as accurately as possible, um, you know, beyond with what you've got just with your power meter. So um, we have developed various on-bike sensors like rake systems, which sit behind the rider and measure the pressure field. That thing is super cool. We got, we, if you have a, a video that you could send us a link to, uh, because that's something I definitely want to put in our show notes. Cause that, that, that thing is wild. Yeah, no, I will. I will. Yeah. It's, it's great. And, and yeah, again, what, it, what all of these measurement systems do is, you know, say for example, this rake system where we measure the pressure field, which is the aerodynamic drag behind the rider what we do is we have that same field and that same plane in CFD. We measure the same field on the same plane in the wind tunnel, and then we measure the same field with the same plane on the rider. And this way we make sure we're measuring the same thing. And if not, we've got to go and tune the models, CFD model or what we're doing in the wind tunnel to match reality as quickly as or as, as closely as possible. Oh, cool. And I think, again, that's something that differentiates um, what we do to other brands is because we have – this this full link across all of the domains what we do in our development always gives results in the real world otherwise it's a waste of time so yeah that's there are four development arms performance simulation cfd wind tunnel testing and on-road measurements so i'm very glad to hear you mention the experimental validation because that's a bit of a pet peeve of mine is when you look at some of the people who um do something in the virtual world and all of a sudden that's the truth. Um, the other thing that, uh, so going back to formula one, cause I mean, I've got a million analogies, but uh, Virgin racing <laughs> was a team that oh. I think tried to do 100% virtual car. That was their mandate was basically we will design it in the computer world and go racing. And it was an interesting approach, but it didn't really work out that well for them. So there's a lot of issues with um, calibrating and correlating the models. So the other thing that comes up often is when you look at wind tunnel testing, uh, that I think to the layperson is often taken as gospel truth. So if it's wind tunnel, that's the way it is in reality. But what you've pointed out is it's not. <laughs> there's certain things that aren't 100% accurate. So your bike is very dynamic. You're moving around. In a wind tunnel, you have to restrain the bike, and there's probably a million other things that I'm not even aware of that you've encountered um, yeah. that lead to lack of correlation. So bringing all those things together, um, I think it's it's such an important uh, message for everyone that um, you have to do all of this different type of testing. It can't just be CFD. It can't just be wind tunnel. And you know, maybe if you're doing on-road testing and you come up with something really good, you can say, okay, this product's good, but, uh, but it's really hard to develop that way. That's just kind of a random trial and error at that point. You don't really know why it's working. Yeah. It'd be fascinating to hear a little bit more about how you have, uh, used some of your tools like the rake and the, the pressure correlation, pressure field correlation, things like that to, uh, to go into further depth with your own product development. Yeah, look, to, to start with the, the, the pressure rakes in the wind tunnel maybe, I think it's a really good place because the wind tunnel's great. Um, so we use a, an aerospace wind tunnel in, in Germany called the GST, which is like super famous now because all of the bike brands in Europe do the testing there. 
And what's really good about that is it's it's a genuine aerospace wind tunnel. They make they still test aircraft. Um, it's super old. It's been there forever, but it's like it's a really good wind tunnel. So um, that's the first important thing because there are I've I've tested in probably every wind tunnel where they do cycling testing in Europe, and some of them are just absolute crap. As in, they have poor balance systems which are made up of an array of single um, single direction load cells uh, linked together with linkages with a lot of stiction and friction and you've got no chance of measuring the resolution of grams of force that you, you need to. Um, and uh, just to put that in, 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 uh, in context, um, this GST wind tunnel where we do our testing has a, a six component, uh, a RUAG balance, um, which is an aerospace balance. And that will set you back a, a cool quarter of a million euros when you want to buy one. And if you don't have a decent balance, you know, you, we need to test accurately to within less than a watt at 45 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you're, you're wasting your time. Um, and you can't do that with, with poor balance systems. But anyway, that was just a quick, quick sort of insight there. But the balance and the measurements you make in the wind tunnel, they're still dumb in that, right, we change something on the rider or on the bike. Cool. We've just saved some watts, right? Okay, brilliant. And especially, you know, let's take it when we're working with athletes and we're developing suits. So we do a lot of textile development and, uh, mm. and actually we're building a little mini wind tunnel here in the Swiss side offices uh, for textile developments uh, right now. Um, and, you know, you change something on the suit and, okay, fantastic. Wow, we've just saved 10 watts, which should be easy um, with, a, with two different suits. But you don't know where. Right, <laughs> the force says yep. <laughs> however many grams less, ten watts at you know thirty miles an hour. Okay, brilliant, but it doesn't really help you. Um, well, it does because you've gotten faster and the athlete's happy, <laughs> but you know you want to learn, right? You so, can't generalize it necessarily. You can't generalize it, yeah. And um, so this is one of the key things that we did quite early on, and um, sort of last year we brought this really cool rake system. And we've had rake systems for a while in the wind tunnel, but we brought a really new one, which is two meters high and scans all the way across the wind tunnel, literally any time we want it to. Um, and it produces a, a um, really beautiful, colorful pictures, great for marketing, um, but they're also great for understanding what's happening. And of course, we plot them afterwards in our computer and we can see them in literally live as it goes across. And you can straight away see, oh, wow, the wake, you know, the, the, the turbulence or the losses, the pressure losses off the rider have been reduced around the shoulders. Mm. And, um, and we say, okay, so we know it's, you know, that suit is better because of the change in the fabrics on the shoulders. But what's also really fascinating about the pressure rate measurements is to see how the whole body works as a chain. So when you change, when suddenly the wake and the, the, the aero resistance on the shoulder area changes, it has an effect on the waist. It has an effect on the legs. So it's not like you just save there. Then suddenly the weight gets bigger um, sometimes around the legs. So it's this it's this chain of effects. And we're, we're used to that in Formula 1. So the, the rear of a Formula 1 car, you've got a diffuser, you've got a lower rear wing, and you've got an upper rear wing. And they work as a chain. So on a DRS system in a Formula 1 car, when you open the, um, when you, when you open the flap on the upper rear wing, you actually stall the whole chain, you install the diffuser as well because you've reduced the suction. So in cycling, it's actually not, it's not a lot different. You've got this chain of, of things that affect each other. Um, and so, yeah, the pressure ache systems really allow us to understand what's happening and the interaction. Um, whereas before with just the force balance, you just have a number. 
So I'll just take a, a quick second there. For anyone not familiar, uh, DRS is drag reduction system. Oh, I just so, learned about this like last week, Andrew. So yes, please go ahead and explain it again. <laughs> yeah, so the, the history with that, with F1, was it was too hard to pass and the aerodynamics were too dependent on being in clean air. So they had to make it easier. Um, so anyway, without getting into Formula One, which I could spend another hour talking about, um, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great point. Like everything is tied together. When you make a change in one area, you could be improving or ruining the airflow in another area and essentially destroying the effort of, of one component that uh, wasn't developed with that in mind. So yeah, it's a very interconnected network. So you have to pay attention to all the changes. The only ones that might be somewhat independent of being impacted by something else would be very far upstream, not 100% independent, but uh, but they have the downside of affecting everything downstream of them. So um, yeah, so yeah, arm so position, things like that, it's it's all very tied in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, just to jump onto that point, you're absolutely right. So things like uh, things that can be fairly independent, uh, front wheel, mm -hmm. um, uh, handlebar, cockpit, um, uh, but the, you know, the, the components themselves obviously are very important, but they see quite free stream air. But then, yeah, obviously, as you go further downstream, you know, seat tubes, for example, um, a seat tube, that's just a little insight, uh, seat tube, seat post behaves totally differently um, depending on what's upstream of it and depending on the size of the rider's legs. Mm -hmm. So um, there are parts of the bikes that are really dependent on the rider and parts of the bike that are pretty much completely independent of the rider. Yeah, but so uh, I want to I want to stay on this a little bit because uh, because of how uh, connected all of these things are, and as you very well explained, JP, uh, you know, in my experience with uh, with field testing, which is sort of where I want to go next, it's it is very difficult. To, you know, I guess it's similar to the wind tunnel. Like we make a change, we see a difference in drag, but we don't necessarily know what that what that was and with uh with field testing it's it's extra difficult because of you know kind of the one of the benefits of field testing is that you're testing in in, in the real environment but also that adds um you know instability and uncertainty like there's no way that a rider can be perfectly static when they're riding on a on a road and so there's you know small movements in the head and then maybe over time that head comes up whereas in the wind tunnel if you have a video system or you know or a laser that's keeping that head perfectly still or perfect you know at, at a certain level you have much more control over it so um given given all of that um where does the the field testing i guess it's sort of the final piece of the puzzle um, how does that fit into you know the other arms of your of your testing protocols? Yeah, so you know when we come out of the wind tunnel and we say, great, we've got new wheels or a new suit or um, uh, yeah, new bike frame that will deliver you know whatever savings. Um, we want to measure it on the road, and the key part that really adds to this is um, uh, we have a huge uh, athlete support side of the business and actually in triathlon we've got the biggest triathlete team out of any brand even though we're a relatively small company if you compare us with someone like uh, Zippo SRAM um, and uh, the one thing that we can do is we can give athletes something that any brand can't uh, and that's not money that is speed um, and so it's in our interest to make our athletes win and it's in our interest to make sure that the designs we bring uh, deliver real performance on the real world. Um, otherwise, it don't count. 
So, um, <laughs> so the to to answer your question, you know, these on-road measurement systems that we've developed, and I mean, not the rake systems. That's more an R and D to make sure we have the correlation to wind tunnel mm-hmm. and, and safety. But then, really, just the measurements. Um, so we have uh, our CDA meter, um, and that one's a funny story because we developed a CDA meter um, for measuring aero drag on the bike uh, as a necessity for our research and development process for this forearm development process. Um, and um, and then all of a sudden, I think it was Argon, the first one that sort of at the Eurobike in, yeah. uh, in 2015. <laughs> the, the integrated bike, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, we'd had a, we'd had bikes out there. And actually even Mavic were, were, were before, I think, before everyone. Like they were in 2012. They had bikes with pitot tubes and your sensors and, and, and whatever out on out in the road. And, and I saw that and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Um um, and anyway, coming back to it, um, you know, we had our device primarily as a, as a research thing. And then we saw sort of other brands trying to do this. And we're like, okay, good luck, first of all, because it's really hard. Um, and second of all, we were sort of like, you know, typical kind of engineering, naive guys doing our engineering thing, thinking, oh, there's some people commercializing our ideas here. You know, how, how can we do this? And, and um, so, yeah, uh, sort of back 2018, we sort of said, well, we've got to do this because there's clearly a demand for it and, uh, and so on. So then we started doing it um, and, you know, bringing, you know, bringing our device to, to the market and it's not on the market yet for those people who are obviously thinking, where is it? Um, and as, just to, to put it in context, it is coming, um, but there's a clear thing. And one thing I learned very early on in building up Swiss side is you've got to know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. Um, mm. At the very early days of Swiss side, we made our own wheels literally made them ourselves and you know we had then we ended up with a uh um what do you call it a factory in in taiwan and and whatever and we just realized it was just impossible to compete on price and quality with the big brands and um and also we're not a mass production company so we luckily at that time also had a relationship that was building with with dt swiss and um because we do a lot of development we have a strategic um technical um collaboration with them they took over as part of that the production of Swiss side wheels. So what's this got all to do with CDA meters? Well, we we had our device, which was you know literally made in-house here by us and our engineers, but trying to mass produce an electronics device and go up against Garmin, um, <laughs> realized pretty early on, you know, that's not our skill set. Our skill set's designing is creating this device that can make accurate and repeatable measurements Mm -hmm. um but we need a big partner to to bring it to market and sort of it took literally a couple of years before we found that partner and that's now well 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 underway um but yeah that's say music for the near future but (laughs) to come back to the more technical thing yeah these devices are super cool um really really and i'll throw in a bit of an aussie bloody hard to get this thing to work um and you know the simple the calculation you know to calculate CDA and to on a piece of paper is quite simple. You know, take into account weight effects. You know, climbing. You know, take into account rolling resistance. Um, you've got a power meter. Take the power, subtract them all off, and you get left with the aero drag. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. But then all you need to do is ride with your power meter and look at the you know with a one meter average at one second average, <laughs> and look at the noise that you get. Yep. Then add the noise that you get on a pedostatic probe, then add, you know, the noise you get from road vibration and, 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 you know, you quickly see that it's quite a, um, quite a, quite a challenging um, project, but um, yeah, 
we need these devices and they're great. One of the main reasons we really want to push this device is then all of a sudden for every you know, keen user, aerodynamics will become measurable and therefore understandable. And then the marketing brands who are pushing you know, untruths, um, uh, you know, marketing news, and those brands who are doing genuine development at a lot of cost and effort um, will be distinguished from each other. And we're a big fan, of course, of those who are doing the homework and doing the research. And um, I would say, you know, within a couple of years, you'll have good devices on the market that can measure accurately. And, um, and then uh, it's going to be fun to see the brands who are doing, doing the real work. So you're the first person who we've had on the show and who I've personally spoken with who has has kind of put a marker down and said, you know, within whatever, a couple of, couple of years, you will have these devices because so far, even the even the folks that are working on them and we've spoken to at least a half dozen, um, they say, you know, well, obviously they, they, they plug their device and they're very bullish on what they're working on. But I haven't uh, I haven't yet had that that visceral feeling that we're we're on the precipice of something that'll make aero testing accessible to you know to anyone who is even somewhat savvy on the on the bicycle because to your point it's very complicated right and so if you were trying to as a as either uh, you know an end consumer or a coach or a bike fitter or whatever uh, which is sort of where I find myself um, trying to do this work um, with with the current tools, there's a lot of stuff that you have to be very careful about. You have to set up the experiment very well, or you get a lot of like nonsense, you know, un- unusable data in the in the end. Um, so I'm uh, I'm very encouraged to hear you say that in in a couple of years time that that process is going to be much simplified because my life will get a lot simpler then too. No, absolutely, and I and I really just have to underpin what you've just said. Um, you know, the, the early devices, you know, you had to, first of all, you had to really know a lot about how to test properly yes. because the, there was no, say, onboard filtering or onboard processing of this device to sort of filter out rubbish and whatever. Um, then, you know, you had to be a coder, you had to crack Golden Cheetah and you had to, you know, <laughs> copy files here and there and try and figure out. And then, then you got just sort of some sort of random number generator at the end anyway. Um, you know, the, yeah. what, what, you, what you said is, is spot on and this is why it's taking so long is anyone who is not necessarily technically minded has to be able to plug and play and start this thing. It has to do the work for them. It has to then give them a result which is repeatable every time and they just go out and ride their bike and they change their helmet or they change their suit or they change their position and they get a difference and it has to be repeatable and reliable. And mm-hmm. um, that's quite complex to to achieve. And the reason why I'm, I'm really positive and I can be positive about it is because, you know, we have a device that does that now um, and only because it's just been a hard slog. And I think, you know, we've, we've probably been at it longer than anyone Um and, you know, also considering and like, you know, I want to give full respect to the others who are, who are trying because I know how difficult it is. And, you know, even with, you know, an aerodynamics team who is, I would say, in the cycling industry for sure, absolutely unmatched, um, got electronics guys here who are absolutely amazing coming out of biomedical just to work on this project for the last few years, um, uh, you know, just to get you know, even with the top people to get it to work is, is, is super hard. Um, but it's, it will come and, um, and it will come soon. So there's been a little bit of, I wouldn't say disagreement, but, uh, people have slightly different approaches with what, 
how they're they're tackling this problem. But I think the consensus is that it's a really difficult problem. It's not like strapping on a heart rate monitor where there's an easy ground truth that you can compare to. Uh, or even power meters. Um, yeah, they went through their in introductory phase where they were a little bit weak technologically, but they've gotten so reliable and robust that they're basically a commodity now. But this is going to, for the, the time being, it's going to remain a challenge for a lot of people to, uh, to crack this problem. And yeah, the repeatable results and actionable results, that's the key for the end user. And you don't want to... Uh, like you don't want to require having an aerodynamicist on staff to interpret the results either. It's not like a rake where that's not a, that's not a piece of equipment that you would ever commercialize unless you're selling it directly to the development engineers. But um, it's, it's something that uh, it has to, in the end, it has to be easy enough for the average person to obtain value from and repeatable enough that uh, they know either they consistently get good results or it indicates when you may not have the best quality results. Um, Absolutely. It's impossible to control experimental conditions. You may get a wind gust or a car that passes you that throws off the entire test, but just having that feedback for the the rider or the athlete is important. Totally. And I think, I think that's, you know, just to throw a little, in insight uh, caveat into the into the, I think one of the keys is that you know the device can recognise when a wind gust comes. Well, actually, you want the wind gusts because you know sailing effect and how you can use the wind on a bike to reduce your drag is super important. So mm-hmm. you want devices that are able to deal with the wind, but yeah, you want you want devices that are able to identify when you're drafting, uh, when you're getting passed by a car to exclude data that isn't useful for the CDA calculation and. Maybe just to give another, just for for the listeners to explain why it's so difficult, you know, with a power meter or a heart rate monitor or a speed sensor, you have one sensor measuring one parameter. Um, And it's fairly simple. With the CDA meter, you need an array of sensors, which includes the power meter, which includes the speed sensor, which includes a absolute pressure sensor, which includes differential pressure sensors for pitot tubes, which includes vibrational sensors. You know, literally, I've just mentioned you know, half a dozen sensors, all of which have their own noise and their own accuracy issues. Then you need to combine all of those. Then you need to do a whole bunch of filtering. Um, and then out of that, you need to calculate a CDA. And then you need to try and do that in a repeatable way um, that can also identify abnormal or, or non-useful situations. It's it's a super hard project compared to a power meter. And power meters, like you mentioned before, it took a number of years before they became super, you know, became reliable and really useful for everyone. Um, you know, the, the problem of or the challenge of CDA meter is factor 10 um, mm-hmm. compared to any of these individual devices. And that, that's why it's, it's even taking the garments of this world um, a long time to, to get something. So I just did a quick calculation there, and then uh, I did not use the same calculator as last oh, time. Oh, so Andrew, I'm so why disappointed. You didn't hear it, Michael. Uh, so I had a very Sorry, loud it's, calculator. Inside joke, JP. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew does uh, Andrew does on air calculations sometimes, and last time he had uh, some big clunker that that made a lot of noise when he punched the keys, and I made fun of him, and then our listeners commented on it and suggested. Yes. Uh, Thank you for Amazon the Amazon products. references for quieter calculators. <laughs> love it, love it. Everyone likes a clunky calculator. <laughs> So if you've got four devices, for example, that are 99% accurate or 1% uncertainty each, uh, combining those measurements, um, there's various different ways to do it, but you're looking at basically 96%. Um, So you're taking these 99% 
devices, when you multiply them all together, you're all of a sudden losing 4% off the top. And any of those devices can have hiccups or its own challenges under different conditions. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a big challenge to, to combine all those, those data streams. Um, Absolutely, I'm punching. My... I'm punching away my calculator. <laughs> I saw you looking here down, as well. So. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and just to put that in context for people, right? Like I mentioned earlier in the in the in, in the cast that um, you know in the wind tunnel we want to measure accurately to one watt, mm-hmm. less than one watt at 30 miles an hour, right? Now let's say you know your average rider who's doing 35 uh, or 30 miles an hour out on the road, he's going to be pushing 250 watts or you know around about like that's a typical. You know, 250 watts is a, is a decent output that someone will be doing if they're doing these sorts of tests. Um, and, you know, you take your 4% inaccuracy and you apply that to 250 watts and that's 10 watts, right? Mm-hmm. So straight away, you've seen straight away and you're absolutely correct and you've talked about 1% inaccuracy on these sensors. Most power meters are only accurate to around 2%. So, you know, actually it's, it's a worse situation. Just by combining the sensors, um, you've got 10 watts, inaccuracy and we need if you want to compare two helmets to each other you need to be able to test within two maximum three watts right right but like you've just said the sensor inaccuracy as a as a base starter is 10 watts so how do you do it and so the answer is you can it just requires a lot of back-end algorithms and and a lot of data so this is one thing i want to i want to bust a myth for people that are listening um, I love it when I go online and I and I and I read about some of the new devices and people live CDA live CDA. Yeah. Oh, live, my live, my biggest pet peeve right now is are those are those those two words. Yeah, live CDA does not and will not exist. I can tell that to everyone. You, you can you can get something, but you need a tail of data in order to get past this sensor inaccuracy, right? So if you want something usable, I mean, realistic. Let's say we can, I'm going to throw it out there, we can realistically use um, 20 seconds of data to get a repeatable good result. But if you really want to do something really good, you need a minute to two minutes of data stream. Um, and then you can be, then, then we, can, we can give you an accurate result to within two watts. So to within what we want to be doing uh, comparable with the wind tunnel. So JP, I, I do really have to apologize, but I, I've kind of overcommitted myself today and uh, I've, I'm actually a guesting, I'm going to be a guest on another podcast, which uh, the recording for which starts in exactly a minute. So I'm going to say, uh, let's put a pin in that conversation, even though that conversation is is fantastic and one I definitely want to have. And uh, I want to say thank you for coming on. And as soon as I'm done with that other podcast, I will be emailing you an invitation to the net, to the part two of this conversation because there there definitely needs to be a part two. So thank you. Um, thank you for coming on. Perfect. Thank you. And look forward to picking it up again soon. And listeners, if you're uh, if you're as, as excited about this conversation as, as I am right now, um, you will have to uh, tune in for, for part two. And in the meantime, um, Uh, If you like the show, tell a friend and uh, give us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.